Hi everyone, my name is Patrick Akio, and if you're interested in developer advocacy, the right way to build communities and how to recover from a burnout, this episode is for you. Joining me today is Leanne Lee. She's developer advocate at Loft Labs and chief karaoke officer and organizer at Kubaroki. I'll put all her socials in the description below. Check her out. And with that being said, enjoy the episode. Beyond coding. I, I get I just have these videos where it's like just me getting frustrated over and over. It's like, oh man, I've just said it wrong again. I can't I just can't. You know, like I write everything myself as well. Yeah. So you would think that it's in my head, but as soon as you're in front of the camera, just looking at it, like Blank. nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing. Um, yeah, in any case, it's like a process. I've um I was looking at old videos that I made with uh, my family members, and mm. it was just it was so cringe. <laughs> like this is terrible. Mm. Which is a good sign. It means I got better. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I have that when I look at earlier episodes. I'm like, man, <laughs> like not even the quality, it's just the conversations. Like you, you said something which was completely unrelated. <laughs> yeah. Like you weren't actually paying attention. I was I was listening to a podcast um, that I did a couple of weeks ago, and then I was like, someone asked me a question, I didn't reply at all. Yeah, I was just. Going on a fun tangent, which <laughs> yeah. is definitely going to happen here as well. Yeah, yeah, um, I get that. But you know, that's—it's not that bad. Also, like it, it always—I feel like if you're creating something and you have this idea and then it doesn't turn out that way, you're your harshest critic. Yeah. But everyone else, like no one's paying that close attention. No one's like, oh, but then you didn't exactly answer that question. It's like, as long as the conversation's good. I used to be very critical. Like still, I think I'm I'm highly critical of the episodes mm-hmm. and I would nitpick, and I, but it would just be frustration on my end. Yeah. And then I would still release the episode and I'd yeah. be like, okay, this is not as good as it could have been or as I want it to be. This is the best we got for this week. Right. And then we move on because next week is, is another one. Yeah, we have yeah, to do this again. Uh, yeah, that's a high turnover rate. Do you cut them yourselves? Edit anything? No, you not anymore. I used to. Yeah. And through that, I think I improved a lot. Mm-hmm. Now the world is doing it. <laughs> but then it's only like it's like okay we cut at the beginning and then we cut at the end yeah, and that's not, it it's not much to cut yeah exactly do you edit your videos yourself some of them not all of them so there are some videos where I have a clear idea and a script and then I I won't let anyone else touch it because yeah. I have like such a clear vision in my head but there's a lot of stuff that um, like tutorial videos or something where there's a lot of cutting of like the console over the face and everything yeah and like this is too much work for me so uh, we have it. <laughs> Um, a technical marketer who's really into video editing. So um, he's yeah. probably happy to do it. Leave it to them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, good stuff. And when it comes to like blog content, going to conferences and standing on stage or video content, like do you have a preference for one oh, or the other? Or you like stage, it all? Stage, 100%. Stage is the best? Yeah, yeah. This is definitely interesting for our conversation later, but I, I always wanted to do like stage performance. Yeah. And there was a... <laughs> was a time when I got so frustrated with um, the tech industry that I was like, I'm going to leave this industry. I'm just going to do stage performance from now on. I was like, I already lined up some auditions and I was really committed. Yeah. But then I had a very good conversation with my CEO. I was like, <laughs> okay, you know what? I'll give this one more chance because it, it's tough to be an artist. It's like mm-hmm. not good money and it's really tough to get gigs. Yeah. I would, you know, like be, working in tech is kind of cushy. So I was like. Okay, I'll, I'll give it one more try. <laughs> I think with DevRel, I mean, you you get to do that more, no? Especially compared to what you did previously. Yeah, I don't even think it's that much more because before I was a consultant yeah. and um, some of it is also obviously talking to people and maybe even almost like an internal meetup, you, you share knowledge. Um, but a big part was also trying to get people to, you know, 
for hiring purposes or yeah. just to like sell our uh, professional services. So a lot of it was also going to conferences. Um, I think now I'm just being measured mm. by that. You know, yeah. before it was like I was doing that on the side, and now it's there are metrics now. Yeah. I have to like prove that if I go there and the company pays for it, that it actually has some return. Exactly. Ah, okay. Yeah. Do they measure it that strictly, or is it no. still kind of malleable? <laughs> no, I do. <laughs> I want to know. I want to know the impact of my work. Like, does it make more sense to go to like a small community conference or uh, to a big one? Yeah. Um, you know, like which kind of audiences does it make most sense to speak to? My my talks, which audience should it be geared towards? I just want to have an idea. Because, mm. uh, yeah, when I started, it was like, we were just, we were really busy, but I didn't know, like, is this actually making an impact? Is it making a big impact, a small impact? Um, so I just started like, okay, let's, let's set up some kind of metrics. Um, there's this really good book called The DevRel I think it's just called the DevRel book or something. Okay. Where they go through this thing called the developer journey. So from the point that someone um, learns about your project up until they want to scale it up mm. and um, you know onboard other people from their organization, like what are the steps in that journey and how can you move people from one phase to the next one? And that's where you can measure like uh, how many people, if you have telemetry on your project, how many people... Um, actually manage to successfully spin up a virtual cluster, for example. Yeah. Uh, if you if you just look at people who download it and then people who actually use it, you can already see like, oh, what's the drop-off? If it's like 50%, maybe our documentation is not good enough. Maybe we need a wizard or something. So these are the things that you could measure and then decide, oh, maybe we need this kind of content mm. or we need to improve our tutorials here um, just to be more impactful with your work. Yeah, I like that a lot because... One of the challenges I had, like I'm, I'm not a DevRel, but I've had this conversation with Jason Langsdorf before and, mm -hmm. and he has done a lot of stuff with the rest of marketing and, and DevRel as well. Yeah. He said a very clear distinction between your output and the outcomes of what you're doing, right? You yeah. can measure output. You can say, oh, I've stood on stage X amount of times. Uh, we've been to X meetups or we've hosted meetups. Yeah. But what is the actual impact of those things, right? Those exactly. are harder metrics. Exactly. And then there's some metrics that might just be vanity metrics, like how many followers do you have on Twitter? Yeah, it's like a it's a number, <laughs> but what does it mean for your business? And also, if if you're super popular with other DevRels, that's great. But then does that translate into money for your business? Yeah, DevRel is a really really tough um, like area to measure because it's kind of to me the the psychology of successful DevRel is not quite clear. It's, it's hard to say, oh, if you're really good at giving talks, that yeah. translates into this thing for the business. It's just, it's it's different with, let's say, marketing or sales, where the numbers might be clearer or the, the objective might be clearer. And that might just have to do with that DevRel is pretty young mm -hmm. as a role yet. So we, have, we don't have that many iterations and that many like sophisticated metrics and tools to track success in DevRel. Yeah. So that might still happen in the next couple of years. Yeah, I, w I would say it's interesting because it. I feel like it's up and coming. Yeah. Maybe it's because of doing this podcast. I've, I've talked to more people that have mm -hmm. that role or want to pursue that role. Yeah. It's even kind of lit a spark in me that it might be kind of an option in the future. Right. Uh, and I always compare it to engineering manager, which is kind of the track that you laid out yeah. or, or that you were on, uh, which I'm interested in. But before we do that, 
for me, DevRel and kind of the measurements, when you said kind of the project journey or a product mm-hmm. journey that a user might go through, for me, that makes t- sense, right? Yep. You go from reading the documentation, spinning up whatever it is uh, that the company is building, basically, and seeing kind of where they drop off. Yep. And basically, when the drop off is too high, that's where technical form content, because in the end, it's a tank company, yep. can help users kind of go through that. Yeah, Users exactly. are usually developers or or at least they have a technical affinity yeah, uh, because it's a tech product at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And that, I could see how the value in measuring that. But then still, for me, the unknown part is, okay, what does DevRel contribute to that? Mm-hmm. And is that the only path that you would measure? Or have you found that measuring other things also is helpful in that way? Yeah, it's a good question because it really depends on what DevRel is in your organization. There's yeah. a bunch of, you know, some DevRels are under marketing, some are under product, some just are their own department. So uh, in our organization, DevRel is part of marketing. So obviously to us, it's more most important, like, do people know about our projects? Um, do they understand the capabilities of them? And are they able to actually successfully use it mm-hmm. and move it, move them along again up to the point where they want to scale up? And then that's where our commercial product comes in that can help them with a lot of stuff. Um, and so if you're doing that, obviously the developer journey is probably the, the best gives you the best points to measure. Yeah. But if you're doing like, let's say product related DevRel, where it's more about relaying feedback from your user base back to the engineering or product team, then you might want to measure other things like how many people actually are involved in um, contributing to your project. Um, how good, I mean, this is always a big thing is like, how good is your documentation both for using and contributing? Yeah. Um, yeah, it just really depends um, what's important to you and your organization. There's so many things that, that play into this, like which state of the startup are you in? Are you like really trying to raise money right now? Or did you just raise a bunch of money and now you can chill a little bit? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's difficult to say just for everyone. If I if I know the answer, I will write a book <laughs> about it and make a bunch of money. Yeah. I mean, the biggest the biggest reason I have that question is like, Sometimes I apply to jobs, right? And there was mm-hmm. this DevRel post that came, uh, or someone came to me with this DevRel job, and it was very much aligned with like personal interests of mine. Yeah, and it was kind of a next step, moving away from consultancy. And mm-hmm. I, I, uh, how do you say that? I talked to the people basically. Yeah. I applied. Is basically the formal way of saying it, I guess, just to see what would my role be. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't really have a DevRel department. I would right. be the first one, basically. Yeah. And they themselves also didn't really know how or yeah. what I would be doing. And that scared me because yeah. I was like, okay, you come from a position where you kind of know what you have to do. Right now, I'm a software engineer. Mm-hmm. I know what software we're building. I know the user stories, the product features. It's it's way more clear. Yeah. And then this position would be, okay, I can make video form content. I can do a podcast. I like doing podcasts. I can write blogs. But then what is it contributing towards? What should I do? Exactly. What is Where's the value? Like yeah. those are so many unknowns that in the end, I didn't do it because of that and also because I didn't really love the product they were mm. building. So then I was like, then I'm probably not going to get energy talking about this product yeah. or, or creating content about it. Yeah. So it just wasn't a good fit at the end of the day. Yeah. But it was sense. very hard stepping into that role, yeah. I felt like. Yeah, when I... Um, so... To me, I feel in retrospect, I've always been doing DevRel even mm. before I had the title of DevRel. So uh, since I was an en- just a software engineer, just a software engineer, since I was a software engineer, I was always interested in sharing knowledge and listening to what, you know, uh, interesting pe- things other people are working on. Yeah. 
And um, that was a big part of what I liked about tech. Um, and then I was doing consultancy because I got bored with working on the same product forever. And then even with the consultants, I felt like I could have more impact if I even uh, if I'm able to talk to even more people mm. at once. So that's why I felt like Devra was the next step. Maybe similar to to how your you know thinking is. And I also joined a company that had. No DevRel team. There was a person on there who was a more um, experienced DevRel. Unfortunately, they left after like two months. Okay. They were supposed to kind of help me, onboard me. Yeah. And they left. And I was, it was a very small startup. And I was kind of left to myself like, oh, you figure it out. Whatever you want to do, it's fine. Yeah. Uh, on the one hand, it was great because um, I got a lot of support from the CEO and I had a lot of freedom. But then I had no idea yeah. what to do, how to do it, how to help, you know, the company um, so I wasn't quite happy there. I stayed there for about half a year and then, you know, they got bought. So it was kind of like an easy way for me to leave. Um, and I, I joined my current company and both of them are in dev tooling, which mm -hmm. is something that I was super interested in how to empower and enable engineers. Um, and now it's, now we're in the phase where kind of also we were quite busy the last year trying things out, but now I'm really pushing for, okay, let's, Let's see how do we actually help our users. So things we need to do more is to, you know, understand our user base really better, really talk to them a lot more. Yeah. Um, and then collect the numbers. It's, it's something that not everyone loves about, you know, like marketing stuff, but it's you need it's a numbers game ultimately. Marketing is always a numbers game. So you have to see if there's 200 people who would want to use our product, but they just can't get past the first couple of steps because the, the tutorial is not good and the demo doesn't work. Yeah. Or there are 20 people who um, would like to scale it up and actually become customers. Then it depends on the business to say like, okay, maybe the 20 people who will actually pay us money are more relevant to us. So we were going to focus on that more mm. than the 200 people in the beginning. Another company might say, no, 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 we want to focus on the 200 people in the beginning. It's very, very dependent on what your focus is. So if you're raised, trying to raise money, maybe the, the potential customers are more important. And once you've raised that money, now you, you care more about the mass, yeah. uh, the quantity. So now you're focusing on the 200 people. How much do you let kind of your own opinion of things guide you in those conversations? Because I can imagine you're very close to the people that are using it. You mm -hmm. have to be. Because otherwise, it's hard to create content for those users. Yeah. And if the organization then says no, we have to focus on this. It's kind of an organizational decision. Yeah. I can I can see a discussion there. Yeah, for sure. And that's I mean that's just a part of business and life. You sometimes disagree on things, and yeah. I think it's important uh, because even though I understand why the business or maybe the sales team just focuses on you know selling the product, um, I'm a devil, and it's literally in my name to advocate for developers yeah so i can bring my perspective and i will bring my perspective but ultimately you know there's usually someone who makes that decision in the end either the ceo or maybe i don't know um probably the ceo yeah uh, so then it's important to i think it's more important to understand what the arguments are and the reasoning is and even if i disagree with the result i still understand why we're doing it and mm. what the goal is and um yeah it's fine to disagree i i I think it's important that, you know, in a professional setting, we're all able to disagree on things and yet still be remain professional and be able to commit to the result, even though 
you know. Afterwards, you can always say, "I told you so." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I like the most that you point out that you have to understand, right? Yeah. Because for me, that's where a lot of personal frustration comes from. Yeah. Is I if I have this kind of slew of arguments why we shouldn't do this, right. and we still do this, and I don't understand why, right? That would be frustrating yeah. for me. Yeah. When I mean, you work in a consultancy, so maybe you have also experienced that with your customers, because I did that a lot where most of the, or not most of the time, but a lot of times it's more about the communication that's breaking down in these organizations that need consultants to come in than it is about, you know, the developers are usually fine. Like they want to do things and the management also usually wants developers to be successful. It's just really that, um, you know, top level management makes decisions and doesn't communicate them down. So then the, the developers that, they think this is important, they work towards it, and then they're being told, oh, actually, this is not important, this other thing is not important. And they don't understand why, because they never understand kind of the higher level business goals. Um, And most of the time it's really like, once you create this shared understanding of like, well, this is what their goals are, and this is what your goals are, and this is why there's this friction, it really, you know, it alleviates a lot of this, especially like this interpersonal, like, Ooh, he's just like making life difficult for me. And it's like, no, he's just doing his shit. Yeah. He probably doesn't even care about you. Or doesn't know. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, talk to your <laughs> colleagues. I like that a lot. Like it would it would alleviate this us versus them feeling. Because yeah. I feel like, I mean, you've joined an organization and you're all in this together, right? Yeah. And somehow weird decisions get made, but it's all from a certain point of view, right? It could be your yeah. point of view or a different department. Things, other things are weird. And if it just stays like that, then it will always be like that and you'll have mm-hmm. clash of departments. Yeah. But when there is a shared understanding, everyone I feel like who I've worked with is a reasonable human being. If we understand, then it's like, oh yeah, this makes sense all of a sudden. Yeah. Because you know kind of the foundational logic that is there. And then you're like, okay, I might still disagree because exactly. I think uh, we can do other things as well. But then at least you understand and you're like, okay, this is the decision. It has been made. You can lay down whatever pitchfork you had and go with the flow in that way. Yeah. And in your daily work, you can also understand better if you need to make like small decisions. Oh, now I understand the business goal is this. So when I make my decision, I will have that in mind and make better decisions for the business. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. I want to dive deep into kind of the moment where you took the plunge in going into DevRel. Because I looked on your LinkedIn and your bio, I mean, you came from a software engineering role you did more so machine learning yeah then cloud native software development and even i saw some engineering management roles and responsibilities in there yeah. like that is for me right now if i look at myself i do software engineering more so on a day-to-day i recently got some adjacent responsibilities that are like inherent in engineering management mm-hmm. which i did on purpose because that is one of the areas where mm. i think it could be interesting growth path wise i like people i like self-development i like right. those conversations but then I really like content creation. I mean, that's mm-hmm. this whole podcast as well. I feel like there might have been kind of a similar track or thought going in your head as well. Can yeah. you kind of lay out the career progression that happened there? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, as I said, even as a, um, as a software engineer, so I started in web development. Mm. And um, even then, I really loved talking to people. So to be honest, I don't think I'm that great of a software engineer. I think I'm good enough. Um, I can learn things if I have to. Actually, I, I learn things pretty quickly, I think. Yeah. Um, but I just don't have that burning passion for like, oh, let's optimize the last couple of bytes out of this algorithm. You know, I'm, 
just it's just not something that I burn for. And it was really starting to go to tech events, finding kind of my crowd and uh, trying public speaking mm. that I really felt like, oh, there's a place for me that I'm really good at and that where I can also provide value to the community, give back to the community. And um, yeah, from there, it, this was my constant kind of, this is the only constant that I had. And other than that, I was really trying to explore a lot of what was going on in the tech space. Yeah. So machine learning was a thing that um, I did a course, uh, like an online course. And then uh, I felt like, well, this is an interesting mix of me being a software engineer who understands the basics of machine learning. Maybe I could like find a job where I could um, learn more about it and see if I can wiggle my way into that industry. And um, yeah, I worked for a startup and it didn't go the way that I was hoping it would. Yeah. Um, so actually we were living in Hamburg in Germany at that time and we were both, so my husband and I, we were thinking about moving abroad, just like shaking things up a bit, like see how life is in a different country. Awesome. We didn't want to go too far, so that's why we ended up in the Netherlands. <laughs> um, so yeah, I uh, luck just because I'm very privileged in that I found uh, on Twitter a person who they were looking for, you know, consultants uh, for their cloud native consultancy. And uh, yeah, I got to talk to them and uh, they invited me for an interview. And it just really was a really good fit. Uh, I was there for four years as a cloud native consultant. When I started, I had never heard about Kubernetes before. Mm. I um, knew a bit about Docker, but I never used it in production, not not knowingly. And um, I went from a senior software engineer to a junior cloud native person. Yeah, that was a bit tough, I have to say, because it's it's always tough to feel like you're the person in the room who understands the least of something. Mm. But they were super nice, and um, especially as a consultant, I learned the importance of asking why or like just asking very basic questions that sometimes feels a bit you know you might feel like like an imposter maybe yeah but actually it's very important to ask those basic questions and um especially i feel like as a consultant you are not the expert on the subject matter that's the people who work there you are you know you can be advisor you have some knowledge in cloud or whatever uh, that you can bring to the table, but really the people who are the experts and the people who ch should solve the problem are um, the people that you are consulting. Um, and yeah, so that was kind of my philosophy all along was just like really just help people. Mm. And I feel like engineering management kind of is in the same general area, right? It's about, you know your career the best and you know what you're good at and you know where you want to go. And I'm just here to kind of help guide you, ask the right questions maybe, um, yeah, and just like challenge you, these kind of things. I really loved that. Then Corona hit, so we were all locked into our apartments. Um, and I was, I was working a lot. I was working like 16 hours a day uh, for a long time. And then I just burned out. During COVID. Yeah. 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 So, uh, I took like about half a year off from work and then I was like, okay, now maybe is a good point to move into DevRel. Mm. I still felt like I probably... I'm not good enough, but hey, you know, in the end, as long as you can find a job and you can find the space to learn and to grow, yeah. who's to tell you that you're not good enough or that you're not ready to do it? So yeah, um, as I said, the first half year as a DevRel, I don't think I've been super successful because I didn't even know what success meant. But um, yeah, I'm here now. Uh, I feel like 
we're doing we're doing good with our, our products and everything. So um, yeah, I think you're you're se- underselling the journey <laughs> a, li- a little bit there. Yeah, yeah, that's how I learned it. You know, we just like always under under promise over deliver. <laughs> <laughs> then it's always good. Yeah, I like that a lot. Coming from because you just because you pointed it out, coming from kind of a senior role and going to a junior role, was that also what you experienced in moving into Devrel in that way? Mm, not at all. Because right. in Devrel, I really. I feel like I had more of an idea what I was doing yeah. and no one else kind of knows <laughs> what you need to do as a devil, right? Like everyone has their own interpretation of it. Um, I was really focusing on the things that I was good at. Mm. Um, but unfortunately, one of the things that I'm good at is to engage with community in person, but it was Corona. So th- that was really difficult. So there were only like online meetups and I was focusing more on content yeah. and um, improving our docs, which is also something that I enjoy. But I feel like I couldn't really live, like I couldn't apply my best, best skills. Yeah. Um, so that that was a bit difficult, but I didn't have this same feeling of everyone in the room knows better about the thing that I'm supposed to know yeah. um, than me. So that was, that was tough, but I knew going in that this was going to happen. And on the other hand, I did have a lot of experience with software engineering, which, um, you know, in this cloud native space, there's a lot of people who don't have that. Yeah. So it's kind of, it's a good balance, um, especially in our team, like my colleague Rich, he's more a system from the system administration side and I'm from the development side. So we really, um, you know, Different to, together we make like one super deliver. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I like that a lot, that you still leverage kind of your whole journey in there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, and I used to study law, so I feel like that also helps me actually. Because there's a lot of... Um, what I learned in in university about drafting reg, like drafting regulations or drafting legislations about the psychology of how do you write something that's fair mm. is actually super helpful when it comes to you know when there's a clash between teams or something and then you have to figure out like what's a fair solution. There's like I'm not going to go too deep into it, but <laughs> there's like ways to to have that conversation um, to ensure that you know like it, it feels fair. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I'm curious about it, and I don't know how much you want to cover it, but you mentioned you were working 16 hours a day, mm. especially during COVID times. Like, oh. I caught myself working from when I woke up to when I would go to bed some days. Just because you were in this mode, you can't go anywhere anyway. I mean, yeah. food, you make sure you have food for the rest of the week because that was advised. <laughs> and toilet paper. I, I, like, every, <laughs> everything you needed. I still remember seeing empty oh shelves, like, when it started. But in any case, <laughs> I feel like a lot of people went through that phase overworking themselves or yeah. working way longer than they might have done otherwise. Let me yeah. just phrase it like that, I feel like. For sure. Right now, we're still kind of working remote and you're not in lockdown so we can go outside. Like, how have you kind of coped with this newer way of working in that way? Yeah. So um, when the pandemic started, I still remember, I just came back from London from a business trip because I used to travel a lot for work also. Yeah. And um, I remember I was like, I'm going to, set up my laptop in the living room just for now just you know just for the next two weeks because i need to and then that turned into two years or something yeah um and i think i also developed some very unhealthy habits with alcohol trying to just deal with the boredom and i used to just go out a lot and meet friends and suddenly all of all that went away yeah um and it's just at the beginning it was just about getting through the day getting through the week Mm. uh, having some kind of social interaction um, and then it turned into 
Well, that that was so long time, right? The first couple of months, it was just dealing with stuff, and then we kind of found this new normal. Um, and then in our company, because we're a consultancy, um, the first thing that companies cut when they are in financial trouble is usually R and D, and that usually includes consultancy. So we mm. did have a very tough time um, business-wise. Yeah. So that would put a lot of pressure on all of us, and then. And then during the pandemic, we moved into, we, we started this uh, engineering management uh, program because we didn't have that before. And I just felt so, I guess, responsible to make this a success. Yeah, uh, I've been with the company at that point for like three years. I knew everyone and everything kind of, and I just really wanted to yeah, push it and make it successful. And I didn't have anything else to do, just as you said. So it kind of felt like, oh, yeah, just let's just work 16 hours a day. Because you wake up and you think about this. And it probably is also a distraction from you know, the, the reality. Stuff. Exactly. Because yeah. it wasn't just the pandemic. Then there was also, like, obviously the climate crisis. And then, uh, you know, protests in the U.S. And all kinds of stuff that was just, like, there was just, like, thing after thing after thing. Yeah. And like dominoes. Exactly. And like working seemed like like a nice vacation <laughs> from reality, actually. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, you know what? Actually, I realized that I needed to take a break because I started like in the mornings, I would actually like cry before client calls because mm -hmm. I felt like there was so much pressure and I just couldn't really deal with it anymore. But I also at that point felt like I, I put this responsibility on myself. So like there's no way for me to get out of it. Yeah. Um, And that, yeah, so I talked to my colleagues and I was like, okay, I think I really need a break. It's just like, I can't do it anymore. Um, and yeah, to, to their, um, I forgot the word, but like, thankfully, mm. uh, it was totally fine. I took some time off and then I left the company and that was also fine. I, I, no one was happy about it, but I think people understood because I wasn't the only one burning out. I think there were a lot of people burning out during the pandemic, yeah. not just at that place. I know a lot of people also had like 10 year long relationships that they broke ended right yeah, crazy. just people you would think that we, they would be together forever and then <laughs> they have to spend all day every day together and they're like mm, actually i don't like eh, this i don't want this yeah um for us it was also because we lived in amsterdam west in a very small apartment and mm. we were like we have to find a bigger place because uh, we either way we knew that we would be working remotely both of us yeah and um You need some space. Exactly. I was like, I need my own space because I was like still living in the, uh, working in the living room. And my husband would always like, if you had to go to the bathroom, you, you would just like walk past me and uh, it's, you need a door to close. Yeah. I, that's the minimum for an <laughs> office, I think. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, whenever I hear people kind of spiraling into a burnout, it's interesting because I feel like people with a high sense of responsibility and ownership, those are usually the people that take on maybe a bit too much, right? Or that want yeah. to do such a great job that they overwork themselves in the case, right? Yeah. And it can be kind of escaping reality, but even when things are normal, it still happens. Oh when yeah, People just sure. completely want to focus on this thing and do it right, and they overwork themselves. I think it's a, sh I don't know if it's a shame, like it's a, it's just a thing, and we have to be mindful of it for ourselves and for other people. Yeah. Because once, this is what I've heard, because I've never had a burnout, but I've heard from people that have gone through a burnout, it's like, There's a really long time to recover from it. It's it's so because when you already I think when you notice that you have a burnout, it's probably too late. You're probably already in it. And um it's so gradual, it's like the frog boiling on hot water. It's you because you're just you just feel stressed. You're just like as you say, those are 
mostly people who are working hard anyway, yeah. who maybe are really passionate and really love it. Like I didn't notice for a long time because I just wanted to do it. I loved it so much. Yeah. And then it gets to the point where the things that you used to love, they don't give you any joy anymore. Like nothing gives you joy anymore. And um, I was like, oh, I'm just going to take like a month off. But yeah, as I said, I was like not working for half a year. And it took me maybe like a full year to feel like I'm myself again. Yeah. Because you lose so much of yourself. I, I, a lot of things I loved, just I just couldn't do them anymore. And I was like a lot of times when I was wondering, can I? Will I ever be the same person again? And I guess the answer is no. I don't think I am the same person. I think I'm I'm different, but not worse. Mm. I've been, become a bit cynical, maybe, and <laughs> I've definitely I'm definitely much more careful with. Uh, like I will. I hope I will uh, notice the signs a bit sooner. And um, definitely also like, I will never work a job that I'm not a hundred percent convinced is like something I want to do. Yeah. Because I know now how it feels, and once you are in this burnout, it's like so tough to get out, and you just you're just like you don't not even sure who you are anymore. That's a terrible, terrible feeling. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you laid out some of the things like looking after the symptoms of yourself to kind of yeah. prevent it happening again looking at the role that you have and yeah. making sure you love actually what you're doing, yeah. like genuinely. Is there anything else that you kind of put in place to keep you from spiraling into this burnout again? Mm. Well, definitely the being very aware of, of yourself and how you spend your time and um, how much you like the things that you do. Mm. Like instead of just being busy and constantly doing stuff just to take regular timeouts. Yeah. Um, I've changed also the way, like the, the time of day that I work. So now I I work f like from afternoon after lunch to evening. So I have the mornings to myself and then I can like do meditation, do some um, exercise, whatever I need doing. And that really shifted kind of also the way that I look at my day. Mm. So instead of waking up and the first thing you do is like think about work, what needs to be done. The first thing I think about is like, oh, how do I like take care of myself today? And then I do my work and I do work late sometimes still. Um, but it's not... It's not the, the very first thing I think of when I wake up. Yeah, I think that helps a lot. Like uh, I've always tried to have a morning routine. Yeah. And when work got more busy, like I let go of that. Mm -hmm. And I do feel the repercussions of that. Like yeah. I, I would be exhausted yeah. going to bed and still tired waking up basically. Yeah. And because I didn't do me time in the morning, I would exactly. go tired to work again. Yeah. When I brought that back and I'm, I'm still kind of like we're not perfect. My morning routine is still not perfect. Sometimes <laughs> I, I still... Uh, fail to do it basically but when I did do it and when I kind of got into the habit of doing it I would feel so much better right like and I would miss that but for me it was like okay I'm in this mode and once you've been in a mode for a long time it becomes this habit and yeah. then it's hard to get out of yeah I feel like yeah, for sure yeah yeah um and there and it, also the other thing is like you can't be too hard on yourself for not doing everything perfectly because that also will keep you from being better like Okay, yeah. I didn't do my morning routine today. Fine, not great, but that's what it is. Don't beat yourself up over it. Just like plan it for the next day, right? Like keep the keep the um, the hurdle to getting started very small. Like I don't know. There's some tips about oh maybe if you like keep your running shoes on during the night. <laughs> you know, there's not the whole Wake thing up with them. exactly. Yeah. Then you're already like you're already dressed for running, so you know you can do it. I don't know if it works, but this is like <laughs> what they tell you. It's like that. a life hack. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if sleeping in your gym shorts will actually 
help you. But you know what? It, why not try it? We can. Yeah, I've I've never done that. I mean, sleep in gym shorts, but then it's just pajamas, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now we just live in our. I mean, like, I I usually like very put together above the, yeah. the waist and then it's just like gym shorts or like some old sweatpants below relax like no one's lo no one's looking at that no fine no i get that but you're still working mostly remote i mean you mentioned yeah. before coming in here yeah it's all remote still right yeah so my co my my company is based in san francisco my team my dev the devrel team the marketing team is i think all of them on the west coast so i'm the only one in europe uh we do have you know people from all over the world really from India to Europe to the US um, and that's why I tend to work late but that's also because I want to mm. um, and yeah I, I have my own little office in, in my house now we moved to Amsterdam Nord because uh, now we don't have to be close to the city anymore Yeah. so um, that was that's nice because it's very quiet there there's no tourists uh, <laughs> <laughs> no offense tourists but when there was when corona happened The inner city of Amsterdam was yeah, so nice. It yeah. was so beautiful. Very like, different. oh, wow, this is like what it's like to really chill in the city. Like, even now, it's like, it's so full again. Have it's, you been recently? Yeah. It's yeah. way more full now. <laughs> oh, yeah, because yeah. everyone's now, oh, this is the last time we can do it. Actually, now I know that <laughs> we're trying to get rid of the English tourists. <laughs> um, so... I, I feel like I feel like that made it even worse because now people are like, oh man, we yeah. have to come out before chance. we can. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's tough. And our office used so when I was still going to the office, it, it was right at the central station. Mm. So every every day I would like go home, like just you know elbowing my way through the tourists. It was really annoying. Yeah, yeah. but I can nice. understand it. I used to be a tourist in Amsterdam as well, so it's really beautiful. I, I get it, but there's just not enough. There's <laughs> not a lot of space. Yeah. Sometimes I wonder, like, if I go abroad, is it like, am I the tourist that yeah, people the, don't like? Yeah, you're that then? kind of tourist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. am, I, am I the, yeah, pro probably. But everywhere else in the world, there's more space on the you know, on the pedestrian <laughs> walkway. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a herd in Amsterdam. It's been rough lately. But yeah, I was thinking back to kind of DevRel and, and what you're doing there. I've heard a lot of people say DevRel is also being involved in communities mm -hmm. and sometimes creating communities as well. And I wonder what the similarity would be because I haven't had any experiences in either. Mm. The only community we're kind of building is the podcast listeners, I right. guess, if you can call that a community, yeah. but it's not really conscious. Yeah. Is it similar to how you would build a team like structure-wise, the thought process that goes into it? Is that a comparison I can make? I think there's a lot of similarities. Um, I don't know what the official definition of the word community is but to me it's about a shared shared experiences more than it is about anything else so mm. if you are um let's say you have like a meetup and you have the community around that meetup then it's not as much as only the people who go to this meetup are part of the community but it's really like everyone who has an interest and if we talk about a topic that has something to do with this meetup then we are both part of this community, right? Mm. And um, even if you're just reading stuff, you're still part of the community. You're still consuming the value of the community. Yeah. Um, I think it's, I know that there's a lot of companies now who are doing open source. They've noticed that open source is a big like m brand booster mm. and they want to build communities around those brands or around their projects. Yeah. And um, I think that's, it's, 
kind of difficult because community needs to grow organically. Like the core of a community needs to grow organically because it's very, very difficult to just create one. As a goal. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Like just to put people together and just expect that, oh, now they're going to be best friends and they're going <laughs> to yeah. hang out and answer each other's questions. It's just not, there's so many things that go into it. Like do people um, actually, are people interested enough in this to spend time and provide value, yeah. time and effort to provide value to other people, uh, other members of the community? Um, you know, do they get something out of the community as well? And um you know what's the what's I mean what's the brand of this community? Is it like if it's like a I don't know like a very unpopular thing? I'm not gonna name any names because I don't wanna. Sure. Uh, but if it's something that's kind of unpopular, then everyone who has something to do with it might be conceived in a negative light. Yeah. Um. So it's it's easier to just let a community develop like a small one and then invest in it. So if you're saying like the community around the podcast, I'm sure there is a community. I'm sure the people who listen to your podcast maybe leave a comment, maybe they don't leave comments, but they in some way share stuff with each other. So to me, that's a community. So now how do you nurture it? How do you do stuff? I don't know, do an MA. I saw you, you've done that. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah, exactly. Um, with teams, I think it's very similar. I mean, teams are different in the way that they're forced together. Yeah. Um, but there are similar things that you can do, like create a very safe environment so everyone is, feels comfortable, you know, making comments, raising their issues, uh, that, that kind of stuff. Um, maybe also creating some regular things so people know that, oh, once a week there's a podcast or once a week we have this meeting together where we can just air out our grievances. Um, I think it's very similar. The only thing is that in a team, you usually get paid to be there so people will be there and come and and provide value yeah. the community especially if you do open source um it's a bit more difficult to get no people financial incentive yeah exactly not even to get people to to do things that's not that hard it's to keep people consistently doing things to that they come back and that they will plan in the long term mm. right that's that's much more difficult uh in open source but um yeah i, I feel like in very many ways it's the same yeah i feel like a big component is what when I talk to people that contribute a lot to open source, a big component for them is like the fulfillment they get from creating something and the engagement from a community using whatever they created. Yeah. Like that feeling of fulfillment apparently is so big for them that they, they come back and they do it again. Yeah. Or yeah. also some people I've, I've heard they created this thing and it actually span out of control and more people are create or using it than they can handle. And they, they don't want to let go of this because oh, yeah. they feel like it's a it's an important component now for other people. Right. Yeah. Um, that's also another thing that I also learned that the hard way is um, when you really do stuff for the community, it's not your thing anymore. Like yeah. you're giving it to the community. And it's also important to understand that no matter how great your vision is and your idea, and maybe you're like really good at these things, but generally speaking, if there are more people working on something it's probably going to be better in the end yeah it's probably gonna they're gonna have better ideas than you could have had and you're probably gonna build something better that you could have done by yourself but it's, if you started it and you feel responsible for it and it's your baby it's very difficult to let that go mm. um so when i um moved to amsterdam and then one of the first things i did was one of my colleagues asked me if i wanted to help him organize serverless days amsterdam which is a community conference around serverless and um we did this and he left and then came back, whatever. But <laughs> it was very difficult for me to let 
go and let other people in and uh, not try to control and micromanage everything because I had a very specific idea of how I wanted the conference to look like, to feel like. Yeah. And um, yeah, I would, even if I delegated stuff to other people, I would still like control, like oh, how, do, how do you do this and blah, blah. And it was only after a while that I realized if I just don't do that anymore, if I let people just do whatever they want to do or that they feel is the best way to do it, it's, first of all, it's much better for me. Mm. But then also you're doing it for the community. It's not Leon days, right? Yeah. It's serverless days. So everyone who's part of the community should be able to contribute and to create something that, you know, applies to their vision. Yeah. So I've, I've since then really tried to, when I build communities, for example, um, the community that currently I'm like building or the last community that I started was, is Kuberoki, which yep. is Kubernetes karaoke. And, um, you know, it started with just me going to places and like asking people to join me. And then we had this official, um, more or less official party. You, you can't see me doing air quotes probably in the podcast. <laughs> There's a uh, lot of video <laughs> The viewers. air quotes um, uh, official party in Amsterdam, which went great. And now we want to do another one in Chicago, but I'm not going to Chicago because I don't want to. Um, and now it's like, okay, someone else is organizing it. And this time around, I'm like, you know what? This is all the information that you need. Yeah. Just do it. I don't even care that much. <laughs> it's like... This is this brand, even though I started it, it's not me, right? Mm. It's this is a separate thing from me. And I feel like that is the now I feel like I'm really doing community work. Now I'm doing work that is for the community, not for myself. Yeah. And then once you do these kind of things this way, the you know, all the praise and the fame, it will come back to you anyway. You don't have to put your name on it because people will know who started all these things, right? Um this is the last part of the friend. Um <laughs> There's a book called uh, Tribal Leadership, and it's like one of my favorite books. It really helped me understand a lot of things about the culture of groups, of tribes. And um, they are basically, they're saying there's five different cultural levels. Mm. And um, level one is kind of like where everyone just hates life. And level five is like, oh, everything's possible. We're so awesome. And there's like this thing that level three people or level three behavior or thinking is about um, I'm the best one. And that's why I maybe try to even sabotage people in the worst kind of scenario or just try to keep all the information to myself because information is power and I want to remain in a position of power. Mm. Whereas if you move to stage four, you're really just giving everything to the group and Ironically, by doing that, you will get more praise and you will get more stuff done than if you were trying to do everything by yourself. And that really, like when I kind of like understood this and started to implement it in my work, that I feel like that really propelled me and my career forward like a billion yards. Yeah, that's awesome. I feel like a, a lot of people say that, right? The art of delegating, no micromanaging. But for me, it really shines when people have gone through that when they've realized that, oh, this is what I was doing, actually. And it's kind of, if you love something, if you want it to go well, then obviously you want to make sure that all the, the I's are dotted, basically. Yeah. And if other people are responsible for dotting the I's, you'll be like, okay, have the I's been dotted? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. you'll, be, you'll be there, basically. And once you have realized that, oh, that is what you were doing, right? Because if it's an outside story, you can be like, oh, you shouldn't do that. Right, right. Then obviously, it, then yeah. it's obvious all of a yeah. sudden. <laughs> when it's you, you might have to really reflect and be like, oh, this is what I was actually doing. 
Yeah. And I feel like when the realization hits, for me, it, it's still been difficult. I still catch myself being like, oh, yeah. oh maybe I, I double check or maybe I did this while I, mm -hmm. I really should have given it away. But yeah, you think about it differently. And all of a sudden, it I think I, it alleviates kind of this feeling as well where you can do this as a team. Right. And you don't really feel like the person that is so responsible for making sure everything goes well. No, it's a team responsibility yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah. You might be a big driver, but at the end of the day, it's a shared thing. It's not mm -hmm. just you. Yeah, again, it ties into the, I, I will be the person who enables and who helps and who gives advice, but ultimately this is not me doing it. It's yeah. more like us as a team doing it. And that's why I also said like, not level three people, but level three behavior, because you could even have this epiphany, as they call it, and still behave in a way that you kind of then realize is not the best way. And I notice it for myself that if I'm really stressed about just things, yeah. I'm not good, not in a good emotional place or mental place, then I tend to be more micromanaging and, and you know, like have less grace, extend less grace towards other people than I fall into these like, oh, why is he not doing this the way that I think he should be doing it? And it's really like so much of interpersonal friction is in your head. Yeah. It's really a lot of stuff that you just make up in your mind. And if you ever just talk to the person, you know, it, it would maybe turn out that you have more things in common than you think, that you're actually trying to achieve the same goal. You just go around it, about it in different ways. Yeah. 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 I love that. It. I see so many similarities <laughs> there. And I feel like it's fine to make those mistakes, right? We're still human. You're never going to be perfect. Yeah. I catch myself and I and I apologize sometimes even where I didn't behave the way I wanted. I'll make sure the person knows that in the yeah. future I'll try and do better, right? That's not what, what I wanted to do basically. And it can be sometimes explained with behavior or, or tiredness or anything else. Or sometimes it just happens, I yeah. feel like, and it's still fine. It's good to know that, I mean, for me, it's good to know that what my triggers are. So if I know that, you know, I'm having kind of like a bit of a tough day, then maybe I just don't have my one-on-ones today. Maybe I'll do them tomorrow. Like, yeah. th these are just like small things that I feel like it's it's good to it's good to know what your emotional triggers are because yeah. you don't want to I don't know you, you don't want to be like difficult with other people if you can avoid it. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Self awareness there. I really enjoyed this conversation. Then this you, was a lot too. of fun. Is yeah. this kind of what you experienced go or expected going into it as well? I don't know. I didn't expect much, honestly. <laughs> Because I was too nervous about there being cameras. No, no, you did great. <laughs> no, I, I I really enjoyed it. I really like to talk about the kind of like n not as technical side. In the end, I believe that all like all tech problems are fundamentally human problems. Yeah, we're just we're just using tech to solve them, and if we could solve them with no tech or low tech, I think that would be even better because every single line of code is tech debt. Yeah, you have to maintain it. So the more we focus on like, how do we communicate better? How do we understand each other better? The better our tech and products will be. Yeah. So I think this is actually very important, a conversation to have. Awesome. I completely align with that. Usually I'm like, do we actually need to create something or is this a solved problem? <laughs> no, everything's solved now. <laughs> exactly. Cool. We're going to round it off here, everyone. I'm going to put all the socials in the description below. Check her out. Let her know you came from our show. And with that being said, thank you again for listening. We'll see you on the next one. And I kind of blabbered the end there. Oh, thanks. Bye.